Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. The U.S. Postal Service got a huge boost this week when President Biden signed legislation that could give it a lot more flexibility to be competitive. We're going to spend the hour today talking with one of the sponsors and a longtime postal reform advocate, Senator Gary Peters, and with two experts who can talk about what the Postal Service could be if we just gave it more of a chance. That's all next on Detroit Today. But first, the news from NPR. to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, it's really great that you have decided to join us. So members of Congress have an awful lot of things on their plate this week before they leave Washington for spring recess. The Senate is expected to confirm Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson as the next U.S. Supreme Court justice. That should happen later today. Uh, She will be the first black woman ever to serve in that role. There is, of course, horrifying news still out of Ukraine suggesting that Russian troops were slaughtering civilians, and that is testing our response to the situation. And just yesterday... President Biden signed a bill to overhaul the U.S. Postal Service. Yes, the post office, that uh, institution that has been with us since the founding of our nation, but that has had awful trouble in recent uh, years and decades with funding, with competition from other services who say they should be the, the ones who ferry things back and forth between our homes and our businesses. Uh, This bill to revive our Postal Service was sponsored by Senator Gary Peters right here in Michigan. Detroit Today senior producer Jake Neer caught up with Senator Peters yesterday just before he went to the White House to watch President Biden sign this bill. Uh, Peters and Neer talked all about the post office, its troubles, and its future. Here's their conversation. Senator Gary Peters, thank you for taking the time today. Oh, great to be with you, Jake. So I want, uh, there's a number of things that I'd love to talk to you about, but I want to start with the upcoming confirmation vote for Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson. We are talking on Wednesday afternoon, so the vote hasn't happened yet, but we are expecting it uh, sometime soon. Uh, I'm curious what you are thinking uh, as we approach that vote about, um, you know, sort of the process so far and this moment in history. Well, there's no question uh, this is a, a major historical event. I'm very excited uh, to be a part of it, but I'm just so excited to be able to uh, to vote for uh, Judge Jackson. She is uh, an incredible uh, person. Uh, she has a distinguished uh, legal career to this point. Uh, in her judicial role, she has always been viewed as probably one of the most impartial judges uh, serving on the on the bench. I had an opportunity to meet with her one-on-one last week uh, and came uh, away uh, even more convinced that she has the the experience and the temperament to to be a Supreme Court justice. So I think we are very fortunate to 
have an opportunity to to uh, confirm uh, a nominee with her character. I certainly was disappointed, though, through the process. You know, I saw some of my colleagues on the other side of the aisle uh, engage in in uh, false attacks, personal attacks, some really nasty stuff uh, that uh, certainly I believed were beneath uh, the, the uh, U.S. senator and the questions uh, that were asked of her. But but all through that, uh, what she did is she just proved uh, herself to be an extraordinary individual, her, her temperament in dealing with some of the questions that were thrown at her that I thought were off-base and, uh, and inappropriate. Uh, she handled with grace, uh, dignity, and an incredible amount of professionalism. She's, she's just going to be an outstanding Supreme Court justice. And I'm curious if you're willing to reflect even more on this environment that this has all exposed. I mean, I think we all know how partisan Congress and the Senate is right now. However, you know, I think I saw recently that when Judge or Justice Antonin Scalia was confirmed, I believe the vote was something like 98 to zero at the time. I mean, it seems like it's a relatively recent phenomenon in American history that these kinds of appointments of, you know, of judges that legal scholars unanimously agree are qualified for the Supreme Court uh, are being, you know, that that there is uh, immense opposition to their nominations. What does that mean to you about the kind of climate we're dealing with? Well, it, it's terrible uh, because you're right. Uh, our previous justices, including her predecessor, I think got close to 90 votes when he was confirmed. So uh, we uh, would come together and understand that the, the Supreme Court uh, is a place where people who are qualified, uh, highly qualified, and, and are, are willing to to uh, uh, conduct their duties in an impartial and fair manner. That should be the, the standard. And, and coming together in a bipartisan way to confirm individuals like that uh, builds the kind of credibility that the Supreme Court needs. When, when you think about our, the framers uh, to our country, the founders, uh, they, they, they certainly knew uh, that the Congress uh, would always be a highly partisan body with a vigorous partisan debate. Uh, you'd expect that of the president uh, as well. But they also knew that for a democracy to function, there had to be folks who were neutral arbiters uh, with uh, what were going to be very vigorous debates. And the place where that was was the third branch of government, the Supreme Court, where people would have confidence that the Supreme Court would objectively look uh, at uh, issues related to a case and then rule based uh, on, uh, on a fair and just reading of the law. And what we've seen uh, is now, unfortunately, the hyper-partisan uh, partisanship involved uh, in Supreme Court justices. We we have some Supreme Court justices now, when they speak publicly, uh, have to tell people that they're not partisan. When you have to start telling people you're not partisan when you're on the Supreme Court, you have a problem. You, when you have to start saying that, that you realize that you're starting to lose credibility with the American public. And that's uh, that's the the number one tool the Supreme Court has is their their credibility. So this we're in a dangerous time for the court, which is why I think Judge Jackson's uh, nomination was so important because of her view, the general view that she was impartial. The fact that she has uh, support from legal scholars on both sides of the political spectrum, appointees of Republican presidents in the judicial area have spoke to her qualifications uh, and her temperament. Uh, I uh, hope we get some Republican votes for her. We already have a number who have said they will vote for her. And when the final vote is taken, I would certainly hope uh, that she would get broader uh, uh, broader bipartisan support. But uh, it is this is a challenging time for our country and a challenging time for the Supreme Court without question.
Moving on to something else here, of course, you serve on the Senate Armed Services Committee and you chair the Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee. I want to ask you about the recent news that we're hearing out of Ukraine. Uh, seems like overwhelming evidence of atrocities against Ukrainian civilians on the part of Russia, uh, although Russia is trying to deny that, although it seems like the rest of the world is is saying that the evidence, again, is overwhelming. What are your thoughts about that and what the U.S. response should be? Well, there's there's uh, no question uh, there's overwhelming uh, evidence uh, that the Russians have been acting in a, in a brutal uh, way. Uh, there have definitely been war crimes uh, committed. And without question, uh, Mr. Putin uh, and others who are engaged in those war crimes uh, need to be uh, brought to, to justice. The fact that Putin uh, launched this invasion to begin with uh, against a, a country, a peaceful country, and to engage in this uh, illegal invasion and what is basically murdering uh, innocent uh, civilians is uh, simply uh, outrageous, uh, must be condemned, and folks need to be brought to, to justice. So. Uh, we will continue to pursue it. I know the president has put uh, even further sanctions uh, uh, on uh, both Russian uh, citizens as well as uh, strengthening some sanctions on, on major banks. Uh, we've got to do everything we can to try to bring this war to a conclusion. Uh, but uh, there certainly needs to be accountability when this is over, without question. And when you talk about bringing to justice and accountability, what does that actually look like when we're talking about something like war crimes? Well, certainly, uh, as a war criminal, uh, the international community can take actions. And, and I think that, you know, right now, with what we're seeing uh, from uh, the Russians, uh, is that there's, there's no, there, I, I, it's going to be tough to find a path in the near term where they can be part of the international community. This is irreputable damage to, Mr. Putin is, is uh, basically subjecting his country to irreparable damage that will take decades to recover from. You're listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Jake Neer, and I'm talking with Senator Gary Peters, a Democrat from right here in Michigan. And Senator Peters, I want to talk about some big news of the day. This is uh, many years in the making. Uh, You were the lead sponsor on legislation that would overhaul, in many ways, the U.S. Postal Service. Again, we're talking right now, we're taping this on Wednesday afternoon. I know you're heading to the White House right after this for the bill signing, but for people who don't know, I mean, you know, this is a this is a major piece of legislation that affects every single American that gets mail, but we haven't heard a whole lot in the media about it. So so for people who don't know, what would it do and why is it significant? Well, it, uh, you're right. It's uh, very, very pleased uh, that President Biden will be signing uh, this legislation uh, into law. And, and actually, uh, this uh, this reform package and ideas in this reform package have been in the works for roughly 15 years, 15 years. Uh, with nothing uh, happening uh, as it should. Uh, I uh, really took up uh, this cause as the the new chair of uh, Homeland Security and Government Affairs, which has oversight of the Postal Service. I've been working on it for a little over a year, close to two years, and now it's getting signed into law, which will put the Postal Service on much more stable financial footing. And and that's critically important for the Postal Service to continue to to, uh, uh, do their critical mission, which is to deliver mail to every single address in America. They're the only entity that does that. Uh, And uh, it is important for them to have the financial resources to continue to do that and to do it in an efficient way, in a timely way. But they were saddled with some very onerous requirements. One of those requirements was to pre-fund all retiree health care for all of their employees, regardless of their age, even ones coming in in their 20s. 
And I want to be clear, there's no company in America that's required to do that. There's no other government agency that's required to do that. No one does that. It's a huge uh, financial burden that was just put on the Postal Service. Uh, We also made uh, reforms such as allowing retirees to be integrated into Medicare when they retire, just like every company in America does, just like the federal government does. Uh, And it's important to remember, postal employees have been paying into Medicare their entire career, uh, and now they can be integrated into into Medicare. Uh, Just those uh, two two, uh, areas alone uh, will save the Postal Service over the next 10 years roughly $49 billion. That's money that can be put into efficient delivery of mail for for customers. We've also put in some performance measures. We want to make sure the Postal Service continues to deliver mail six days a week, which is uh, critically important for many customers of mail service, especially those who get prescription drugs in the mail that need to have that delivery uh, in a timely way. And we've also put in performance metrics. Right now, the Postal Service, with this legislation being signed into law, We'll post uh, online uh, their on-time delivery uh, standards or their actu- the actual on-time delivery that they've experienced over the, the last week uh, in every zip code in America. So as a postal customer, you can see uh, if your mail is being delivered on time and what percentage, buy your zip code. It's going to be updated every single week. Uh, they're going to be able to better uh, have a better handle on how quickly mail is being delivered And if there are problems in certain areas, make sure that uh, those uh, problems are being corrected. But it will create the kind of transparency that uh, certainly customers uh, expect uh, from a modern modern business entity or an entity like the Postal Service. Although it's not a business, it's a service, uh, we want to make sure that they provide that service as efficiently as possible. And I know you got to get going, uh, but really quick, I'm, ter- I'm curious about specific impacts here in Michigan. Um, you know, I've, I'm a lifelong Michigander, but I did live in a state, uh, Alaska, which is, has an outsized impact on how much they depend on the Postal Service. But what about Michigan? What, what are uh, some of the big implications here? Well, it is. It's the same in Michigan. You mentioned Alaska. It is particularly important uh, to rural areas. Rural areas rely on the Postal Service uh, every day, just like all of us who, all those of us who may live in suburban and urban areas. But as I mentioned, you've got to have medications are going through the mail. You expect that to be timely. Yeah, paychecks, uh, bills. Uh, if you're a small business, uh, the Postal Service allows you to engage in online commerce and, and be able to ship your products uh, to customers. It's absolutely essential to everyone, but rural areas in particular. And clearly, Michigan is also a very rural state. When you get into northern Michigan or the Upper Peninsula, uh, you will find folks who live in those areas uh, uh, understand how important the Postal Service is to their daily life. And with these reforms, uh, the Postal Service will be able to do their job much uh, more efficiently and better uh, without being saddled with these onerous requirements that no other entity was saddled with. It was simply... uh, Uh, unacceptable that the Postal Service had to do things that no one else had to do. This will make life better for our postal workers uh, and the customers they serve. Senator Gary Peters, a Democrat from Michigan, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Uh, Great to be with you, Jake. Have a wonderful day. You too. with Detroit Today, senior producer Jake Neer yesterday, shortly before his bill to overhaul the U.S. Postal Service was signed into law by President Biden at the White House. 
Coming up, we are going to talk more about that legislation, which is meant to help keep the Postal Service alive and strong for years to come. A couple of experts are going to help us reimagine what a thriving Postal Service could look like into our future. Stay with us for more Detroit Today. Bringing you news that matters. Stories that impact your life. Music from the Motor City and around the world. This is 1019 WDET. Detroit's NPR station. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always... Thanks for tuning in. The Postal Service has been a part of our critical infrastructure in this country for many, many years and decades. It helps us communicate with each other, sending messages and materials across really long distances. It also facilitates our participation in things like work and school and politics, and it allows us to do things like keeping in touch with family members and loved ones across the nation and, of course, around the world. But in the digital age, there are a lot of people who have questioned the significance of the Postal Service, and some of its competitors have moved some of us to say, well, why shouldn't we make this a private sector enterprise? There are some people who have even suggested that The post office, which is part of the U.S. Constitution, which means it's been with us since the very beginning of the nation, that maybe it should be allowed to fade away, to absolutely stop operating. Of course, there are other people who disagree, saying that the post office should go further and do more, that if we unburdened it of the things that some of its private sector competitors don't face, it could actually be a sterling service in our government. There are people who suggest it should be a space for voting, for conducting financial transactions, for offering loans to people who otherwise might not have the credit to get them. Maybe it could even be used for selling inexpensive goods and services. The idea is that if we applied our imaginations to the idea of the Postal Service, we could come up with all kinds of things that it might do and might do really well. President Biden signed a law yesterday that will ensure that the post office stays alive, at least. And while this was a pretty modest move, it could be the start to some new thinking around this very old American institution. And that's where we continue the conversation here on Detroit Today. We want to talk about what the Postal Service could be. What could we rely on it for? What could it do to make money? Not that that's the purpose of government, but there's nothing wrong with the idea that uh, a government service could make enough money to pay for itself, for instance, or to help offset costs of other government services to talk about what we might imagine for the Postal Service. We've got two really great thinkers on the subject. 
Ian Lee is an associate professor at the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University in Ottawa, Canada. Ian, welcome to Detroit Today. Uh, Good morning and thank you, Stephen. Also with us is Monique Morrissey. She is an economist at the Economic Policy Institute. Monique, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you for having me, Stephen. Before we talk about the significance of what President Biden did yesterday and what it might mean to the future of the Postal Service, I want to spend a little time listening to what the president said as he signed this law. Today, we enshrine in law our recognition that the Postal Service is fundamental to our economy, to our democracy, to our health, and the very sense of who we are as a nation. And this bill, this bill recognizes the Postal Service as a public service, and we're ensuring that it can continue to serve all Americans for generations to come. For all generations to come. I think that was certainly the idea uh, that the founders had when they included the Postal Service in the Constitution. Of course, we're in a really different space in 2022. So, Monique, I'm going to start with you. Uh, What's the significance of this reform law, which It includes allowing retirees to acquire Medicare, which is a really key financial shift for the the Postal Service, uh, and and some other moves that really shore up its financial stability for the future. Why why should we be paying attention to what the president did? Well, I think that the main impact of this bill is that it's removing a major burden on the Postal Service um, and that privatizers and other critics of the Postal Service have used since 2006 to make it seem as if the Postal Service is inefficient, money losing. Um, And really it's because it bore these burdens that Senator Peters earlier was talking about and um, that were canceled with yesterday with this legislation um, that made it look like if the Postal Service was in the red, was not efficient, uh, when in fact it's a very efficient operation. Uh, and the only problem it faces is this burden of pre-funding uh, retiree health care that, as Senator Peters mentioned, uh, no other company, no other government agency is required to do. And similarly, paying into Medicare without getting anything out of Medicare, which is also unique. So it's really removing some burdens and freeing it up to uh, show how efficient it is and what other things it can be doing that I know we'll talk about later. Yeah. Um, uh, why does the Postal Service matter as much as it does? I try to do a good job in our open of talking about the things that I think uh, bring value to this part of government, but but spend some time talking about, I guess, why we have it and why we shouldn't just kind of uh, bat it, you know, uh, bat it away and think, well, that was a thing that was really great when the country was founded, but uh, technology and uh, efficiency have overtaken uh, the usefulness of this. Monique, why do we want to keep the postal service? Well, that's a good question. So there's always sort of a debate about the public service and the role of government, the proper role of government. And most people, most Americans would agree that, for example, you know, Apple and other companies do a great job of, you know, with smartphones or with computers that we wouldn't want government making smartphones. We'd have something like you have, you know, back in the days in Eastern Germany or in the Soviet Union. We don't want that. On the other hand, most Americans also agree that they show it by where they choose to send their children to school that, you know, for-profit 
education is not really a good thing. I mean, we have some for-profit colleges and they've been shown to be a disaster. So the question is what distinguishes things or, you know, that we think the government does better and what distinguishes things that the private sector does better. And there are a few that apply to the postal service here. One of which is that when a market is truly competitive, then sometimes the private sector innovates more. So, you know, in the smartphones or something like that, it is competitive. I mean, there's some dominant players. Um, but when you come, it comes to basic utilities, networks, um, then it, it's never going to be competitive. We're never going to have competitive delivery service. There's always going to be an advantage to the big player who delivers, you know, every day. And the other advantage, the other things that the Postal Service has, um, you know, so, so basically even countries that have privatized or semi-privatized their postal services have heavily regulated them because they understand that it's not a competitive market. So it's not competitive. It relies on trust. These are people coming to your door every day. Um, you know, I think that that trust could actually be used for to expand services. There are many other things that we trust government with, we trust public schools with. Um, and so that's trust is a big factor of it. And other major, major thing is equality and the fact that also this is fundamental to our democracy. So, you know, most, um, you know, for, for sure we saw this in the election, increasingly people are voting by mail. So it's important, you know, during election days, but even beyond that, we view information, public radio is another one that shouldn't, some information uh, sharing, some, some things shouldn't be left to people's ability to pay. And this, you know, also sen the Senator uh, mentioned this and President mentioned this too, is that rural areas in particular, um, you know, if, if this was left to the private sector, what we would see would be one dominant or a couple of dominant players uh, providing good services to certain wealthy and dense areas. And in other areas, people would either get no services at all, or we'd be paying very much for those services. And rural areas, you know, the Postal Service is actually incredibly popular around the United States, and it's popular in red states, it's popular in blue states, urban, rural. We have post offices and postal delivery in poor areas, in rich areas, in rural areas, in urban areas. This would not happen. The services would not at all be equal, and the pricing would not at all be equal if it was left to the pub, to the private sector, or if the private sector could encroach, you know, could sort of cherry pick, um, you know, uh, markets. And so this is one of the reasons, that, you know, we decided early on and, and at the time it was, you know, one of the things that, that for example, motivated George Washington was the, the idea that people needed newspapers. Um, so newspapers were heavily subsidized, you know, um, now most people get their news electronically, mm -hmm. but what people now depend a lot on the Postal Service for medicine, for voting, for other really critical services, and still for information. So, you know, the, the need for the Postal Service has not declined, it's actually increased. And I think we'll talk about this later. I think one key area that the Postal Service used to be involved in, uh, is no longer involved in, but I think we should bring back is expanded financial services, just to allow ordinary Americans to be able to do basic record keeping transactions, uh, without paying through the nose for them. They, they, you know, we, we're increasingly poor Americans, low-income Americans in places, rural Americans in places where banks are, are underserved are having to pay just to pay their bills, just to, you know, uh, you know, cash their paychecks. And we think that that should be a postal service um, task also. Hmm. So Ian, uh, let's talk some of the basics. I know that, uh, of course, 
you are in Canada, which has its own post office. But uh, talk about how critical uh, the U.S. post office is. Uh, I know that that's a, uh, an area of, of, of research for you as well. And then uh, do some comparing, I guess. Uh, what, sure. What's the difference between postal service here and postal service in Canada? Um, I spent four years doing my Ph.D. on the post office, and I chose it because nobody, if you can believe it, had ever written an academic thesis in Canada on the postal system, which I thought was bizarre because, of course, it's the central communication system if you go back far enough. And so because I, I wanted to find out the origins of the post office, the CAM post office, I had to go to the origins of the American post office because it predates and heavily influenced the formation of the CAM post office. And in that process, I came across this incredible quote by George Washington, your first president, about the U.S. postal system, the founding of it. And he said, we are going to bind the nation to us with a chain that will never be broken. Nothing diabolical about that. He understood the unbelievable strategic existential importance in the day when there was no cell phones, no Internet, no NPR, no CBC, no nothing. It was everything. It was the telegraph, the telephone, the TV, the radio, everything, all, newspaper, all rolled into one. It was the way that you could communicate in a vast country, which the U.S. was, the Canada was, to vast geographies. And, and so until did, and I'm going to nuance this, because, and for the next 150 or 200 years, the postal system was absolutely, critically, existentially important to commerce, to politics, to, to everything in both countries. And and what's happened, and I'll bring this up to date very quickly, um, I, I think that the U.S. Postal Service and the problems facing the two countries are almost identical. If you look at the, the declines in letter mail or first-class mail or whatever you want to call it, they're declining precipitously mm. in both countries. And I can state it in one word, young people, or two words. Um, <laughs> I, every year with my students, I say, what do you think of the post office? And they giggle and they laugh. That does not mean that there's no important role for the post office. You go into rural Canada or rural U.S., and I've been many, many times in the U.S., the post office has an incredibly different uh, meaning and importance to people in small towns and rural parts. But in the urban environment, it's becoming almost irrelevant. And so the challenge, and I do believe there's a future for the U.S. Postal Service, I believe there's a future for Canada Post, but not as it's presently constructed that it only delivers, essentially delivers letter mail, six days a week to 16 million addresses in Canada, 160 million addresses in the United States. They're going to have to reinvent themselves. I agree with Monique. You know, they're going to, you know, hunting licenses, fishing licenses, uh, maybe places to vote. They're going to have to be, re, I think, re-engineered. And I've said this before, the, uh, the commission that was investigating the future of Canada Post, they can become the, the central agency in all these small towns and villages across the country, any both countries, uh, to deliver the totality and gamut of, of government services. Um, I'm just very quickly for run out of time on this. I do disagree, disagree with Monique on the um, uh, claim for postal banking. I testified against it. Um, I believe I was evidence-based. I had the data from the government of Canada, uh, from the regulatory body that says 99% of Canadians have a bank account. Uh, that the claim of underbanked Canadians isn't supported empirically. I looked up the FDIC data yesterday, Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, Washington. 96. 
Oh, I think we might have lost Ian Lee there. <laughs> we lost the connection with him. Um, we will get that connection uh, back started. But uh, meantime, let's get going on the phones and on social media talking about the post office. Uh, what do you think of the post office these days? How much do you rely on actual snail mail, as we call it? Uh, do you appreciate the services that it provides? Would you be sad if all of that went away. Uh, and if you still value the, the, the post office and postal service, what would you do to make it more vital? What things do you think we could reimagine for the post office? Uh, as always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there. Or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, we'll try to work you back into the conversation uh, that way. Um, before we get to uh, before we get to to listeners uh, in either form, uh, Monique, I want to I want to talk just briefly about how important you think um, you think this this move is to to free up the post office. And uh, from from its financial burdens, and what what difference that will make immediately for people, uh, I, I think that's one of the critical things you always ask: is okay, well, we're fixing this. Will people notice? W- will there be something that says to them, "Hey, uh, this is better than it was before"? Well, it is a real opportunity to try new things, and unfortunately. Right now, um, there's a big fight going on about one of those opportunities, which is um, the Postal Service fleet is about 30 years old, if you can imagine. And it's about a third of the federal uh, vehicle fleet. And President Biden has said that we need to be moving very rapidly towards electric vehicles for rather obvious reasons. Gas prices are going up. Uh, electric vehicles are the you know the cars of the future. Um, and uh, the postmaster has made a... Um, very strange deal with a defense contractor in Wisconsin that it did before it actually did the impact statement. So before it actually analyzed whether or not this was smart, it made a deal to to buy a bunch of uh, vehicles from this company, Oshkosh Defense, that's moving to a non-union plant in South Carolina to make mostly gas-powered vehicles and incredibly inefficient gas-powered vehicles that when they're running, the air conditioning will basically run at the same um, you know, be, be the same as the, the vehicles that are there now. So about eight miles per gallon. And in this analysis that it did, which was very flawed, it used a lot of, uh, you know, false assumptions like that gas was going to be in the low $2, um, you know, for decades into the future and that kind of thing. So this is a real, this is something where the, the USPS should be taking the money it just saved because of the, the Reform Act and putting it towards an investment Electric vehicles cost a little bit more upfront, but they save money in the long run. So if you do an analysis fairly with real realistic gas prices and realistic mileage and costs, you would find that they save money and that's something where it's better to do the investment upfront. So that is a big deal one. Um, the other thing that's happening right now is the Postal Service has engaged in, in a pilot program of making tiny little steps towards do, expanding its financial services in the form 
of um, uh, check cashing, um, but it needs to do better on that because it, you know, so far it's in four post offices. The the what it's charging for the service is too high. The limits on the checks that it will cash are too low. So the unions and other people and advocates are really pushing against that, trying to expand that, and make that better because that is a very useful service. Um, so I think those are two areas, but I, there are also many many other things that the postal service could be doing, including, for example, as long as it's expanding its electric fleet, which it will be doing even under the terms of the agreement that the Postmaster General just signed, um, you know, it could also be providing uh, recharging at its 30,000 post offices around the country. So the, the post offices are really a, a, a huge value to the Americans because there's more of them than anything. There are more, more post offices than McDonald's or Subways or anything around the country, more than Walmart. So if they electrify, that will really uh, jumpstart the shift to electric vehicles that the country needs to be doing. Mm. Okay, when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation about the Postal Service, its current state, and its future. We've got Ian Lee back with us from Carleton University in Ottawa, Ontario. Monique Morrissey will continue with us as well. And we will get to you on social media and on the phones. Remember, 313-577-1019 is the number. Give us a call. Tell us what you think about the post office, how often you use it whether you think it still has a vital purpose here in our country or whether you think there are other things that could replace it. If you like the Postal Service, call and tell us what you think it should be doing or could be doing to compete better with uh, other private services. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. We're talking about the Postal Service, which got a pretty big boost from President Biden yesterday when he signed legislation that will unburden uh, the Postal Service of some pretty significant financial obligations, make it a little more nimble, maybe make it a little more competitive. The question is, what should the post office be doing to make itself more competitive, more relevant in a world where technology has taken over so much of its business, but also where private uh, providers have long uh, eaten away at some of the things that the post office does. Uh, we want to hear from you about what you think uh, the future of the post office should be, what purpose it serves in your life right now. You're someone who gets a lot of mail still, a snail mail as we call it, or sends a lot of snail mail. Call and tell us why, why you choose that form of communication over all the other things that you have available right now. Uh, also give us a sense of what you think the post office might do to pivot, to be more vital and critical uh, in 2022. As always, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook or Twitter and uh, put comments there, and we'll work you into the conversation. We've got two great guests with us as well. Uh, Monique Morrissey is an economist at the Economic Policy Institute, uh, and Ian Lee is associate professor of the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University in Ottawa, Canada. Ian, I want to come back to you because you got cut off <laughs> while we were talking okay. before and let you finish uh, the really sure. great point you were making. 
Yeah, the when you look at the actual numbers, and this is what I testify, I've written two op-eds in the, the National Newspaper, the Globe and Mail, sort of analogous to the New York Times in Canada, and saying that the post office is at a, uh, it's at a crisis point, and, and so is the USPS. Uh, and that is because if you look at the people who write letters, they're overwhelmingly at the high end of the demographic scale. They're older people. Uh, there's no question about the data. Uh, young people, uh, overwhelmingly, as we all know, live in the digital world with their cell phones. I see it with my students every day. And this is not to say that there's no need for the post office. That's not my argument. My argument is the post office has got to be reinvented. So I'm, I'm actually saying something quite similar to Monique. I, I dis- disagree about postal banking just simply because I don't buy the argument that there's a shortage of uh, bank accounts or banking institutions in either country when you look at the number of people that have bank accounts. It's 96% in the States. It's 99% in Canada. So, but that doesn't mean that there aren't all kinds of things, that, you know, driver's licenses, hunting licenses, fishing licenses, Government checks, a, a, a government resource center for all things government, for the interface, for the face-to-face. Instead of every government department having its own department, you use the post office as the community hub. And, and, and again, in the big cities, and this is really important, I think the post office has become largely irrelevant in the big cities, in the major cities, you know, say over 150 or 100,000. But when you go to the rural and you go to the small towns and villages across Canada, across the U.S., and I go to the States every year, four and five times, it's amazing how important the post office is. It's the center of the town's existence. And so you may need a, 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 a dual strategy where it's maintained and reinvested in in smaller towns, communities, and whereas in the larger cities, it, the, the need for it is diminishing uh, by the minute. One more very quick point. Canada Post has decided to reinvent itself as the, uh, the um, essential partner of e-commerce, and their e-commerce parcel delivery is exploding. And by the way, the data for the U.S. postal system is also exploding. So they've got to focus like a laser beam uh, on, 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 on becoming the, the critical partner of all the e-commerce companies, whether it's, it's Amazon or Walmart or whatever, uh, because the, the postal system has one singular overwhelming competitive advantage. In the U.S., 31 thousand postal outlets hmm. as as Monique just said nobody else has anything close to that not Walmart nobody <laughs> and that is one enormous incredible distribution network that's their competitive advantage they've got to leverage it and generate more revenue per post office by doing many other things 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones call and join this Really great conversation about the Postal Service, what it's like right now, what it could be like, what it might be like, given the legislation that President Joe Biden signed yesterday. You can also go to social media, of course, and uh, leave comments there. I want to start with a couple of social media comments. Big Neo uh, on Twitter says, as... uh, as a USPS worker, it's a relief to hear about these changes coming into play. Now, if Congress can ensure to place management that has come up through the Postal Service and not use folks like DeJoy, who is running the Postal Service right now, who have zero work experience with the post office, we'd be better off. I'm going to come back to that point in a little bit. Um, Matt on Twitter uh, says, curious to know if the dismantling of sorting equipment ordered to slow the delivery of absentee ballots in swing states like Michigan 
and causing a slowdown in mail delivery that harms small businesses? Has that been remedied? Uh, I want to come back to both of those points, but I want to get to uh, some calls first. Uh, Daniel in Detroit, you're up first. Um, Well, I just wanted to make the point that, you know, why are we hand-delivering mail to uh, the majority of doors in America? You know, my neighborhood's got mailboxes at the end of the street, and it's not an inconvenience. I mean, that could save a lot of time and a lot of money. Also, why are we delivering five or six days a week, and mainly we're delivering junk mail? What (laughs) is the carbon footprint of junk mail, and what is the carbon footprint of five to six days a week of hand-delivering to everybody's house? (laughs) Why don't we move this? Let's do, let's stagger it. Let's do one neighborhood on Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays. Let's do another neighborhood on Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Saturdays. Let's not buy all these vehicles right now. If we change this right now, we could probably buy 30% electric vehicles for the Postal mm-hmm. Service. Yeah, we Daniel. Could cut the uh, Daniel, that's a really interesting set of ideas, um, and I'm glad you called and and made those suggestions. I think especially the question of why we deliver to people's doors as opposed to some common receptacle, I guess, uh, the, the, which is how we send mail, as you point out, right? You put the mail in the in the box at the end of the block. Um, I, I, Monique Morrissey, I'll give you the first. Can I jump in on this? Yeah, no, go ahead, Ian. Uh, And the reason why, and I'm sorry, I don't mean to be, uh, you know, rude or anything, but um, Canada literally addressed this exact question, and we went to community. They're called community mailboxes. So at the end of every street, there's a a box with the logo of the postal system, etc. And the postal uh, uh, person, the letter carrier, delivers the mail to that box, and there's little boxes with keys, almost like safety deposit boxes. And, and the cost, and this was uh, verified by Deloitte Consulting, the cost, the savings for that last, the so-called last mile problem is staggering. It's $500 per person per year. They're saving billions by going to community mailboxes, and about 75% of the country of the population has been converted to uh, community mailboxes. So the savings are very, very significant. It's much more efficient. And secondly, to the point of uh, staggered delivery, I testified again before the, the investigatory commission on the future of the Canadian Post Office, and I said, look, um, uh, the, because the mail volumes are dropping, we don't need it five or six days a week. We mm. need it, yes. But I said every second day, and there's been public opinion polls surveying both businesses and consumers separately, and there's a majority support for reduced delivery, not eliminating, but say Monday, Wednesday, Fridays, um, as so long as they know that they're still going to have their, their mail service. Mm-hmm. Uh, Monique Morrissey, I wonder what you make of Daniel's suggestions for more competitiveness. Well, first of all, I'm actually half Canadian, and so I'm very familiar with the clustered mailboxes. And this issue does come up in the United States. The United States is much more densely populated uh, than Canada, and so the cost savings would be a lot less. Also, you know, we were talking earlier about, you know, there's a suggestion uh, by Ian that, um, that, you know, that it should be Prime, the, the postal service should shift towards just servicing rural elderly people versus urban young people, and I think that's all wrong for economic reasons. Which is that you know that would basically burden the postal service with doing only the most expensive deliveries, and then you know 
uh, allow the you know private sector to to cherry pick the most lucrative routes. So I I strongly disagree with that. But also in the United States, they have periodically considered not the Monday, Wednesday, Friday, but dropping Saturday service. And what they invariably find out is that it is the six day a week a service that is the most valuable thing that the postal service provides. Hmm. That and and one of the things that that the current postmaster is he's undercutting this not so much by suggesting that they drop Saturday delivery, but by by uh, talking about slower um, delivery for far-flung areas. And so this is extremely controversial um, because, you, you know, you can always on paper say you're saving costs by cutting services, but when you cut service, people also shift their business to other um, carriers or other things. And so you actually, you lose business. And as to the general idea that the postal service is something of the past because people are paying their bills or they're, you know, emailing each other rather than, um, well, I mean, the, the 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 postal vehicles that they're buying are, uh, they actually carry more rather than less because we are shifting from predominantly mail to predominant to a lot of packages. So we're modernizing. Yeah. There there has there's always been trends. There's always been ebbs and flows in the different kinds of things that are shipped by the postal service. It's not a question of losing business or becoming archaic. It's a question of we're moving towards moving medicines, moving, uh, you know, uh, hmm. um, you know, uh, you know. Uh, ballots and things like that, other critical things, um, and that that it's, the postal service is more necessary, not necessary, than ever. Yeah. Stephen, uh -huh. just one quick point. Sure. I agree with Monique, but let's remember the business model of traditional letter uh, delivery is you push out the mail and go to every address five or six days a week, whether you have mail to take there or not. The parcel post business model, if I can call it that, is very different. You only take the parcel to the address when you have a parcel to take to the address. So it's a fundamentally different business model. Yes, that model is, uh, the, the, the parcels are growing like crazy. The percentage increases for the USPS is phenomenal. And I think it is the future. I agree with Monique. But it's a different business model if you, and if, as, when letter mail disappears, and I think it's going to be gone within about 10 years uh, once this, the older generation pass on. And it's, just, it's going to shrivel away to an insignificant number. But parcels are, are exploding. But you don't walk down to 160 million addresses in the U.S. Five, five, six days a week if you don't have a parcel to take to them. It's a different business model. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I, I do want to get the answers to the uh, social media questions that we had about leadership um, and this dismantling of, of equipment. We've only got about a minute left, though. Um, Monique, do you want to take a stab at yeah. both of those? Uh, well, yeah, the, there was actually, among the things that happened, it was a very eventful week for the Postal Service, and one of the things they had was a hearing on two nominees to the Postal Board. Uh, long story short, uh, they're slowly placing the Trump appointees who hired Louis DeJoy, who technically works at the pleasure of the board. So uh, Biden is slowly replacing that the board has to be split fairly evenly uh, between Republicans and Democrats. Right now, there will be four Republicans, four Democrats, and one independent when the year is out. Uh, but there will be fewer that were Democrats appointed by Trump who are strong supporters of the current very controversial postmaster general. So uh, that is what advocates are looking to, who want uh, postmaster general DeJoy to leave, are looking, are hoping that these uh, new nominees uh, will uh, move in that direction. Yeah. Okay, uh, I, I would love to continue this conversation, and the <laughs> listeners would too. The phone lines are crowded, and social media is kind of overflowing. But we are out of time. Uh, Ian Lee and Monique Morrissey, though, I want to thank both of you for being here with us. This is a really great conversation. My great pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much. 
All right, that's going to do it for us today. Tune in tomorrow when we are going to talk with Amani Perry about her really interesting new book, South to America, A Journey Below the Mason-Dixon to Understand the Soul of a Nation. You are not going to want to miss that conversation. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.